So Brad Nelson and I met nearly 20 years ago, and we ended up uh, pastors together at a church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We were on staff there together for years and years, and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years. He's a pastor now at a church in Florida, and we haven't seen each other for nearly seven years. He flew in uh, Wednesday night, and it felt like we picked right up where we left off and were able to dive into really deep heartfelt conversations about each other's lives and what's going on. And uh, I am beyond thrilled to give you all the opportunity to get to know Brad a little bit as he has agreed to teach us this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, Brad Nelson. Thank you, Andrew. All right. Okay, am I on? All right, perfect. Well, I have um, plenty of stories that I could tell you about Matt Crick. Some that are probably not best suited for a house of worship. And uh, so we'll leave those to another, other places and other times. But there is one story I do want to tell you about him. And that's this, about four months after my brother-in-law, who was 20 years old, was tragically killed in Iraq, drove his Humvee over a roadside bomb. He'd been married to my sister for four months. Four months after that, I'm in a pastor's training on how to do funerals. And Matt's leading the training. And we're in this tiny room, and I am still in the throes of grief. It's still raw. And if any of you have gone through grief and lived through grief, you know that you can just get to this point where it's like, I'm tired of this, I'm done with this, I don't want people to see me crying anymore. And about halfway through this training on how to do funerals, I just, I, I couldn't do it anymore, and I lost it, and I fell apart and I'm tucked away back in the corner of this room, so it's so difficult to get out, and I just buried my head in my hands and started praying, God, like, hide me. I don't want them to see me like this. I'm tired of being like this, and I just sat there sobbing as everybody was looking at me, praying, God, hide me, God, hide me, and about 15 seconds into this, I felt this embrace, and I began to feel teardrops falling on my arms. And I opened my eyes, and, and Matt had a hold of me. And when I tried to look around, uh, I couldn't see anything because the way he had embraced me was hiding me from everyone else in the room. And that, to me, is this guy. That's who he always has been. Everywhere he goes, he enters into the pain, he absorbs it, he comes alongside, he doesn't try to fix it, he doesn't try to give answers, and in so doing, he invites people into this kind of wholeness that is just so, so beautiful. So just know, all the way from Florida, you guys have a piece of my story and my heart week after week standing up here and leading you, and uh, I'm so grateful to know that, that he is here with, with you all. So um, I want to show you a picture of another friend of mine. This is a, a man named Dan Allender. Does anybody here know Dan Allender? Are you familiar with that name? Okay, Dan, Dan is like a legendary therapist in the Seattle area. I think he's like 40 years now, a uh, sexual abuse therapist. And um, he's one of the funniest storytellers I've ever heard. And uh, I, I want to read our text this morning. And then I want to tell you a story from Dan's life as a way to kind of get into our text. So our text this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. 
After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, said Jesus. But so that we may not cause offense, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. This is a fishing story. And uh, there's just something about fishing and stories that go together, historically. I don't know why, but fishermen and stories go together. And when you read a text like this, the text implies we're meant to believe that Peter went and did this, opened the fish's mouth, and there was the coin. It's a miracle. It's a miracle text. And I know that when we read a text like that, there's at least two groups in the room. Those who are like, come on, this is the 21st century. You expect us to believe that it's like the lake ATM. He just goes and you know, catches some fish and you know, the change that he needs is in there. Come on, I, I don't buy it. Then there are those of us who are like, oh yeah, that happened. Miracles happen all the time. Of course I believe that. And, and what can so often happen is we can get distracted by the miracle and miss the message. And, and this is why I want to show you a picture of this guy. Dan, uh, he's a fly fisherman, was invited to speak at a conference in Montana. And uh, I don't know if you know anything about Montana, but fly fishing in Montana, they just go hand in hand. It's like the capital of fly fishing uh, world. And so when Dan received the invitation to speak at this conference, he said there was no need to pray, to seek the discernment of God. The answer was yes, I'm coming to this conference to teach. So he flies out there gets to the conference, he does his first Friday afternoon session, finishes up, and goes out to a river. And it's, it's majestic, it's perfect. The mountain in the background, the sun is setting, he gets all of his gear together, and he sits, sits down in a tube and floats out into the depths of the river as the sun is going down. And he, he begins to do the river runs through it thing, you know, the back and forth with the line. And uh, he said, as I was doing this, all of a sudden, I, I became aware that there were these birds that were just rapidly darting at my head, and I kept having to move out of the way. And he said, I'm, I'm not an ornithologist, but I thought to myself, gosh, these birds are unusual. And it took him a few minutes to realize that these were bats. <laughs> and for some reason, these bats were, they were swarming him, and they, they had it in for him. And uh, so he, he begins to take his, his fishing pole and to swing it in a wild X fashion, you know, trying to create like a no-fly zone. And uh, these bats just keep darting at him. And as he's doing this, he actually makes contact with a bat, and this bat falls down in the water. And he says when it comes up out of the water, there's this really pregnant moment where he looked at the bat, the bat looked at him, they locked eyes, and it was as though the bat had one thing on its mind, and, and that thing was land. And it starts flapping its wings, trying to get up onto the tube that Dan is floating in. And so he's still being darted by bats, and he's trying to like splash and get out of the way of this bat because he doesn't want to come in the tube. So he starts to take his fishing rod and, and to whack the bat. And uh, just, just keeps going until uh, he, he drowns one of God's creatures. 
and he's beside himself with stress. He's still being darted by bats. He just wants out of the water. So he tries to turn to paddle out of the water. Meanwhile, the whole time this is going on, his, his lure is out in the water and it's been taken by a fish. And this fish is, is going crazy and he's trying to reel it in and he's so stressed at this point, he just wants out of the water. So he's not trying to play the fish. He's just like trying to get it in as fast as he can. And uh, he brings it up to take the, the hook out and it opens a mouth full of razor sharp teeth. Now to this point, all he's ever caught are pleasant little trout, you know? And so he doesn't have any of the gear to deal with a fish with sharp teeth. And so he, he just tries to shake it shake it off the, the, the hook. And of course, if you know anything about fishing, this only sets the hook deeper in the fish's jaw. And he's still being darted by the bats, so he begins to swing the fish to try and, and get it to, and pretty soon, like over his head, just trying to get this thing and until uh, till its lips come off, comes flying across the water, you know, plops down, at which point he's like, I'm out of here. Turns, begins paddling toward the dock, there's a figure standing on the dock who's had a perfect vantage point to take all of this in. And so he climbs up out of the water and he's mumbling to himself. He says, oh my gosh, I, I'm just going to walk past this person. I'm not even gonna make eye contact. And as he gets closer, he realizes that it's an older gentleman who is attending the conference that he's teaching at. So he keeps his eyes down, tries to walk briskly past him, past him on the dock. And the man, as he's walking by, reaches out, grabs him by the shoulder and says, son, I've been fishing for 30 years. And I want you to know, I've never seen the likes of this. <laughs> and I just want to thank you. <laughs> now, here's the thing. That is, a, that is a wild story. That's a crazy story. And he's such a good storyteller. You might hear a story like that and you're like, come on, it, it probably didn't happen quite that way. You're embellishing, you're putting a little elbow grease into it. But what's interesting is when Dan tells that story, the, the fishing story is not the point. The point is the man on the dock. Because later in that conference, he's try, he spends the whole conference trying to avoid this man and ends up having a conversation later in the conference where he has to speak to this man. And that conversation leads to a life-altering decision in his son's life. So the crazy fishing story is actually just a setup to the real thing. And this is what I think is happening in this passage. If we get so distracted by the miracle, oh, I don't believe that could happen, or oh yeah, that happened, and we make the miracle the point of the story, we end up missing the message. So don't be so caught up on the miracle that you miss the message, and it's the message that I want to talk about. Um, so let's go to the next slide. I wanna just give a little bit of context so this is the city of Capernaum. I had the chance to go here uh, two years ago and uh, you see these black basalt uh, stone homes. This is like first century Capernaum. This is where Jesus's home base was when he did his ministry. And uh, there's that church there that's built over a structure that the earliest kind of churches believe may have been the home that, that Jesus and Peter lived in together. There's no way to know. Uh, but, but this is Capernaum. This is where this story takes place. And the story tells us that two temple tax collectors come to Jesus. Now that's important. These are not tax collectors for Rome. They're tax collectors for the temple. 
in Jerusalem. These are Jews. So if you go back to Exodus 31, verse 13, you'll find that the Torah institutes what's called like a poll tax, that every Jewish male who is of fighting age is to pay a particular tax yearly, annually for the upkeep of the temple. And that's, that's what the, these guys are doing. And, and so it would go to this, and uh, so much money was brought in from this tax that Josephus, the historian, tells us in one of these gates, they just, they had so much money they didn't know what to do with it, they started to erect this huge golden vine. And every year as this money would come in, they would just add to it. And so for many Jews, this temple tax was sort of a picture of corruption. It was a picture of a temple that had more than it knew what to do with and was just sort of squandering it and, and wasting it. And they come to Jesus and they say, are you, are you going to pay this tax? And uh, what's interesting to me, let's go to the next slide. Uh, the, the word in this passage that is so key is this Greek word skandalizo. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Scandal, scandalous, that's where we get this word. Jesus says to Peter, we really probably don't need to pay this tax, but so that we don't create a scandal, go catch this fish and pay the tax. Jesus doesn't want to cause a scandal. Now, we live in a culture of scandal. I mean, you can take your pick. Uh, we could go down the list of recent scandals, right? Here, here's one, you know, you, we've seen this ad, and Matt was telling me he talked with you about it, uh, but this ad showed up uh, online, and then within minutes, I saw all kinds of reaction on my social media. I mean, it just elicited this strong response from people all over the spectrum. Uh, then there's this, some of you may have seen this two days ago, uh, Bishop McCarrick in, I think it was Washington, D.C., uh, yet another cover-up sex abuse scandal within the church that was known, that was covered up, and this man resigned, and it's, it's all over the news right now, and there's outrage. And, and then some of you may remember a couple of years ago, Brian Williams and his story about was he in a helicopter that was hit or was he not, and his story kept changing, and it, it just turned into this, this scandal, right? And so these scandals are basic. I want to define a scandal like this. A scandal is something that is so far beyond the bounds of what is considered acceptable, normal, or even moral, that it elicits strong reaction or outrage. Strong reaction or outrage. This is, this is a scandal. And here's what's interesting to me about this passage. Jesus says, let's not create a scandal. But my friends, Jesus is a very scandalous person. You read through the New Testament, over and over again, he is perfectly content to scandalize people. He scandalizes his religious contemporaries with the way he eats, who he eats with, how he eats. If you read John chapter 6, verse 61, he tells his disciples, hey, if you want life in me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> and they're like, uh, you're crazy, we're out of here. And at no point does Jesus chase them down and say, no, guys, you, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Just, I'm just kidding, don't run off. No, Jesus is perfectly content to let them walk away. In fact, if you follow this Greek word scandalizo around the text, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about the cross, 
He says that the cross is a scandalizo to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Jesus is perfectly comfortable being scandalous. Scandal is where his whole life is headed. And so this raises a really interesting question about this text. Why is it that Jesus, who is often very scandalous, chooses not to be scandalous in this situation? Why? What is happening here and what might that teach us or have to tell us about the kind of lives that we're meant to live? And the answer, I think, is found in like the first century dynamics behind this temple tax. This temple tax was not paid by everyone. The Sadducees, who kind of were like the temple elites, they, they frowned upon it. They, they, they didn't look at the temple tax as something that they should have to pay. The Essenes, which was another religious group in Jesus' day, they believed the temple was corrupt, and so they would only pay the temple tax once in their lifetime. Now, if you were a priest and you worked at the temple, you were exempt from paying the tax. And there was one other group of people who were, who were considered free from paying the temple tax, and that was anybody who did ministry and relied on the charity of others. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus is bankrolled by a group of influential women. And all the ladies said, that's right, amen, right? Jesus lives off the charity of others. So on that grounds alone, he shouldn't have to pay the temple tax. But notice what he says to Peter in verses 25 and 26. He asks him, what do you think? From who do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or others? And Peter says, well, of course, others. Right? When Herod comes into a town, does he tax his own children? <laughs> no. When the Romans crush you and conquer you, your town, are they taxing you or their children? Not, no, they're, the children are free. What Jesus is saying to Peter is, I am God's son. I shouldn't have to pay tax to keep up my father's house. So on two counts, Jesus is well within his rights to not pay this tax. He's well within his rights not to pay this tax, but he does it anyways because he doesn't want to scandalize. And here's why I think that's the case. And let's, it's this. Jesus never scandalizes out of self-interest. Jesus will never create a scandal to benefit himself. And you see this dynamic over and over and over in the New Testament. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, you see, let's go to the next slide, this, this same word that shows up, but take care that this liberty of yours, this right of yours, does not somehow become a scandalizo to the weak. Paul is talking to Christians who've come out of the cult in Corinth, and they have come to a place of maturity where they know there is no God but one. So they have no problem eating meat from the marketplace that may or may not have been sacrificed to an idol. But they have brothers and sisters who are fresh out of that lifestyle and aren't as comfortable eating that meat. And when they come together, Paul is basically saying, listen, just because you have the right 
don't force your right, like give up your right to make room for somebody else's conscience. If you look over into the next chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking to them about why he doesn't ask for payment as their pastor. He says, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we still more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Again and again, we're not going to push our rights and create a problem for somebody else to come to God. And then the classic passage that kind of describes Jesus's life, Philippians 2, verse 4 through 7, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited to be used for his own advantage, but instead empties himself over and over and over in the New Testament. You see these situations where people have a right to do something, but they forego that right because they want to be mindful of the benefit of others rather than the benefit of themselves. Paul and Jesus are both scandalous people. Read through the New Testament and you will see this clearly. But when it comes to how they work with others and treat others, they refuse to be scandalous. They refuse to be scandalous. And, and I think this is huge. I think it's huge that they don't press their rights because we live in an unprecedented age of rights. At, at maybe no other point in human history have we thought about our own rights as obsessively or in quite the same way as we do in, in our day and age. And this is actually not a bad thing. In some ways, this is a really great thing. Right? We talk about human rights. And, and we, as followers of Christ, should be at the front edge. We should be some of the leading voices in extending human rights in the world to those who are vulnerable, to those who are oppressed, to those who are on the underside of power and are being marginalized. We absolutely should do that. And we celebrate that we live in this age of rights. Uh, we have the right to assemble, the right to worship. We have the right to dissent, the right to free speech, or even as the Beastie Boys remind us, the right to party. Right? This is a right that we may have to fight for from time to time, but it is a right nonetheless, right? But what happens when you are thinking so much and so obsessively about your rights and not your responsibilities? What happens when rights go off the rails? A right, hundred years ago, Gandhi, was asking this question, reflecting on his culture, saying the farce of everybody wanting and insisting on rights, nobody thinking of duty. Rights, not responsibility. And here's my question. What kind of world do you end up with when people are so focused on their rights that they forget their responsibilities? And the answer, I think, is you get this kind of world right here. Let's go to the next slide. 
this may look to you like a picture of the passenger seat in my 2000 Honda Accord. But I assure you, friends, it is much more. This is a battleground upon which two children under the age of 11 fight for supremacy on a daily basis, fight for the right. Who has the right to ride up front? Who has the right to sit in that seat? My goodness, when we're at a hotel, they fight over who has the right to press the elevator button to get to the top, right? And we laugh about this. Anybody who's had kids, you've seen this kind of thing. Like, I, I have a right to more ice cream because she got more ice cream, you know? And uh, it's funny, it's so true, but what's sad, what's sad is when we never grow beyond that. When as adults, we just do more sophisticated versions of that same fight. It's a picture of one of my favorite bands uh, called The Civil Wars. They sing a song called Poison and Wine. It's a song between a husband and a wife. And as they sing back and forth to each other, you hear in the lyrics that they're just missing each other. They're just talking past each other. And one of the lines in the second verse is, she sings, I wish you would hold me when I turn my back. And his response is, the less I give, the more I get back. That's what kind of world we end up with when we're so focused on our rights that we stop thinking about our responsibilities. That's the kind of marriages we end up with when we're thinking about our rights and not our responsibilities. Picture a family. Dad has passed away. And they're trying to figure out what to do with the estate. And they're in the attorney's office. And there's bitter silence. And backbiting. And fighting over who gets what. That's the kind of world we end up with when we're so focused on our rights and not thinking about our responsibility to others. It's, it's shorthand for I'm going to get what's mine and I don't really care what that means for anyone else. That's the world that this leads to. And my friends, that is not the world Jesus has called us to. When Jesus scandalizes, and he does, when Jesus chooses to be scandalous, he does so at great personal cost to himself. When Jesus is scandalous, it doesn't cost somebody else, it costs him. He will lose disciples. He will lose his life. He will lose his power, his privilege, his position, Anytime Jesus chooses to scandal, he's the one who absorbs the loss. And in so many ways, he scandalizes because he's doing it for the interest of other people, because he's interested in something bigger than himself. And you know this kind of scandal when you see it, don't you? You know this kind of scandal when you see it because it looks, let's go to the next, next slide, next slide, next one. Next one, yeah, 
You know this kind of scandal when you see it because it's somebody who's willing to put themselves in harm's way in interest for something bigger than themselves. Well, the next slide. Somebody who's focused on something more than just their own personal agenda, their own personal freedom. Let's go to the next slide. This is Henry Nouwen. Nouwen was a professor at Harvard, at Yale, at Notre Dame. Near the end of his life, he walked away from this to live in community with a group of developmentally disabled adults, where week after week, he wrote a sermon to a small congregation of people who had no appreciation for his education. And yet he did this because somehow this felt truer to the kingdom of God than pursuing a life of power and prestige in academics. He walked away from his own self-interest to pour himself out for the interests of others. Or I think of this story, these two beautiful people. This is Rabbi Damalin and Basar Aramin. Rabbi Damalin is a Jewish woman whose son was killed by a Palestinian sniper. Basar Aramin is a Palestinian man whose daughter was killed by Israeli defense forces. And they speak together as friends. They form a group called the Parents Circle, where they bring together parents from both sides of the conflict who've lost children. And they sit together and ask, could somehow this pain that we share lead to a reconciliation that's bigger than the hate that divides us? They did an initiative in 2011 where both sides donated blood to the other sides. These people have every right to be angry, vengeful, vitriolic, and hateful. And yet, they have foregone that right, laid it down, and are doing something so much more beautiful so much more world-changing. And I think what's interesting about every single one of these stories is that they are so far outside the bounds of what is normal, so far outside the bounds of what we would think of as, nobody does that. And as you hear stories like this, it does something to you, doesn't it? It elicits a strong Reaction, my friends, do you know why? Because that's the right kind of scandal. That's the right kind of scandal. Scandal that costs you in service to something bigger than yourself. And that's how Jesus scandalizes. It's why he doesn't scandalize in this text. And it's the paradigm for how he does scandalize in his life. And that is the invitation he's calling us to is simply this. It's what I want to call you to is to live scandalously. To live scandalously. Can you live a better kind of scandal? Is there a way this week in some small fashion 
where you could create the right kind of scandal? Is there somebody that if you were to forgive, if you were to seek reconciliation with, if you were to call, if you were to go out to lunch with, that the people in your life would be like, you did what? You, no. You have every right to be angry at that person. You have every right. And yet you laid down that right to pursue something bigger than yourself. Maybe for you, you've been in a rhythm where you're just so focused on yourself. You're focused on your agenda. You're focused on your path. You're focused on your ascension. And sometimes this just happens where we get so focused on ourselves that we just start to lose kind of touch with the meaning of life. And then this really strange thing happens. When you bump up into someone else's suffering, it like reminds you why we're here, why we're alive. Maybe the scandal you need to create this week is to get out of your own rhythm and get in touch with somebody else's suffering so you can remember why you're here. Whatever it is, my friends, the, the invitation of Jesus is to live scandalously and to live the right kind of scandal. I was going to put uh, a picture of the most interesting man in the world up. You remember uh, from the Dos Equis commercials? It's just, I don't always live scandalously, but when I do, it's for the benefit of others. But I wanna, I wanna just finish with this. These kind of scandals, they're the kind that always change the world. The Christian church started as an illegal movement of powerless people under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And yet in the span of a hundred years, they somehow turned the world upside down. How did they do that? Many scholars believe that there were three elements that caused that to happen. The first is that they subverted the social structures of the Roman world. Very hierarchical, very socially defined. These people go with these people, these people go with these people. And then people would walk into a house church and they would, say, they would see seated around the same table a Jew and a Roman, a master and a slave, a man and a woman, a prostitute and a Pharisee. And the church showed them a new kind of community that the world had never seen before. And this began to change things. Oh my gosh, that kind of community is possible? That's scandalous. How, who would do that? But it's this beautiful alternative. In the Greco-Roman world, if you had a child that was born with any kind of deformity, a cleft palate, blind, some, like, you know, some kind of deficiency, oftentimes that child would, be do, they, they would do what was called infant exposure. You take the baby, you take it to the agora, the public marketplace, and you set it down and you leave it. And in large cities like Ephesus and other places like that, you could find piles of babies in the marketplace. And people would come sort through these children to see, could I make a slave out of this one? 
Could I turn this one into a prostitute? Is there any way I could make money off of this one? And many people think that what the earliest Christians did, they went to the marketplace and brought these children home to make them a part of their families so that they wouldn't have to endure that kind of life. Did they have the money to add another mouth to feed? Probably not. Who would do that? How, why would you put yourself in that kind of risk? And yet this was a scandal that they gave themselves to and created a new kind of family the world had never seen before. Frequently in the ancient world, when a plague would hit a city, Cities were so small, people lived right on top of each other that the plague would spread through the city so quickly that if you had the means, you would leave the city and go to the countryside. But there was this group of people who would stay and care for the sick and give water to the dying. And it was these Christians who would engage in risky compassion and do the scandalously unthinkable of putting themselves at risk to care for the lives of others. And many people believe that it was this movement, this movement of scandalous inclusion, care, and grace that turned the world on its head. And I think it's still possible. If we follow Jesus courageously into living the scandal of his grace, that kind of change is still possible. We come from a long line of scandalizers. May you live scandalously this week. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come now to your table. We come to take broken body and poured out blood and to take it into ourselves as a physical bodily reminder that you are calling us to be this very thing. People whose lives are broken and poured out for the good of the world. God, I pray that in a culture in a world where people are so obsessed and focused and concerned about their rights and getting what's theirs, no matter what that means for everybody else. I pray, God, that you would raise up for yourself a community of selfless people who are willing to lay down their rights who are scandalously willing to pour themselves out for the good of others in the, such a way that it would create a beautiful alternative that the world cannot understand because it's so far outside the bounds of what's acceptable, what's normal. Why would you do that? Jesus, enter into our lives. Spirit, come into us and give us an imagination for what a kingdom scandal looks like. God, I thank you for this community that meets in this town. I pray that you would make them more and more and more into a sign of your kingdom. We ask all of this in the strong resurrected name of your son, Jesus. Amen.